Good evening. Thank you very much for coming. Please bear with us a few seconds. We're trying to connect one of our panelists who unfortunately was unable to get her visa to join us tonight. And um, we're trying to sort out the connection so that at least she can make a statement to this event. She's in Nigeria. She's a young activist. I will, I'm going to introduce her in a few seconds as soon as we get this uh, sorted out. Thank you for your patience. Okay, we're done? Yeah. Good. So she should be coming through now. So if you sit, tell us what I'll give you the cue. Okay. Well, good evening, and uh, welcome to the public lecture on politics, humanitarianism, and children's rights. We thank you for your presence here this evening. My name is Alcinda Honwana, and I'm a centennial professor at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and I'll be the moderator of our discussions tonight. I'll start by introducing our colleague, Mariam Hamed. Ms. Hamed graduated as a youth ambassador at Save the Children in Nigeria in 2018. She has advocated for children's rights in Nigeria and in international forums. She particularly campaigns to end child marriage and sexual abuse and to ensure that girls have access to education and reproductive rights. Ms. Hamed works with various, various human rights organizations, developing discussions with adolescent girls about the challenges they face. She's the leader of the Shebok Girls Ambassadors and organized several marches demanding the release of the Shebok Girls. In 2017, Miriam performed her poem, A Girl with a Book, on Capitol Hill in the U.S. A verse of her poem reads as follows, and I quote, No soldier, no gun, no landmine and no bomb has ever succeeded in shutting me down. There is nothing more powerful than a girl with a book. And unfortunately, Miriam could not join us, as I mentioned, but uh, in, uh, join us here in London, but she will be joining from uh, her hometown in Nigeria. Can you please connect us? Secretary of State, Mr. John Sullivan, and 
it's an accomplishment that I, um, I would say. So, um, what inspired me to write and record uh, my song, I believe, is um, I organized this discussion to talk around my age and we talk about issues like early marriage, um, sexual reproductive health, um, the um, child rights act, and so on. So, because I'm around the same age with them and and from, I relate with them more because I'm from the northern part of Nigeria. They tend to open up and they tell me about their issues. So now listening about those issues and also you know, hearing what they're facing and advocating for them now inspired me to write this song to encourage them that they can be whatever they want to be and you know, nobody can stop them. If they, we just meet advocate for you know, our parents and the government and society to give us the space to reach our very full potential. And then um, the three ways that I would say safe children have, um, the way that safe children have improved me is the fact that they have, you know, first of all, we focus my advocacy from, uh, from our, um, to our right perspective, because before I was, Working mainly on passion, what I was passionate about, and what I believe, you know, the government should do. Um, they refocused it to arrive at this perspective, so they made me understand that this is actually your right. That going to school is your right, and you know, having access to healthcare is your right. So they were the ones that helped me understand the Child's Rights Act, which I really appreciate because now. We use that, and I use that in my advocacy to explain to the government that these laws are there, but they're not really being enforced. And then, um, working with civil children has also improved me uh, by building my capacity. So they took me through, you know, capacity training and advocacy and campaign training. Um, they taught me how to present speech. They taught me how to do a video pitch. The advocacy um, cycle, self evaluation, and uh, partnership, etc. So that's also how civil children have improved me. Um, they also improved me by giving me the opportunity to advocate at a global level. So um, I also have, um, I'm the leader of the Chief of Girls Ambassadors. Um, the Chief of Girls that were adopted, the over. Um, the girls that were adopted when they were writing their secondary school examination um, in 2015. So, I'm the leader of the Chibokrel Ambassador, and every single Chibokrel Ambassador is representing one of the Chibokrels that were adopted, so we're over 200 girls. So, that also we advocate, we have writing, and we actually spoke to the president about it. Sometimes we want to do what we want to do, and want them to prioritize um, the return of these girls. And she assured us something was done about it. And two weeks um, after, these, some of these girls were rescued, which I would also say is a big accomplishment. Which is also one of the reasons why I, um, one of the reasons why I got inspired to write my song. I believe. So I would like to thank everyone for giving me the opportunity to also advocate on the rights of uh, girls and the issues that we're facing in Nigeria and what we'd like the government to do about it. Thank you very much.
Thank you. We thank uh, Miriam for joining us uh, over Skype. Unfortunately, we cannot engage with her. That's why we just had the statement and she had to go. But uh, it was really important for us to have Miriam's voice and have a first-hand account of someone who was in the field working with uh, on issues of uh, girls' rights and uh, 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 reproductive uh, uh, rights and uh, engaging with all these girls that have been abducted. And she was able to share with us some of the work that they're doing there. And uh, those are the kinds of experiences that we wanted to bring here to our discussion uh, tonight. And we're happy that technology, uh, with all these challenges, managed to get us uh, connected to Maryam Hamed in northern Nigeria. But so, once again, we are in this public lecture on politics, humanitarianism, and child rights, which is organized in the context of the two-day conference on the occasion of Save the Children's 100th uh, anniversary. And I wanted to let you know that the audience can, and people who are not present here can engage with us through the hashtag LSCSAVE, and they can also ask questions or send questions through the hash, hashtag SCCONF100. Um, so to start with, I'll just make a, a quick five-minute statement, just kind of introduce us to the team, and then I'll introduce you to the panel, and we will have a, a discussion which will start here with the panel and then open up to, to the audience. And I just wanted to say that, you know, Save the Children was established in April 1919 by Dorothy Baxton, a feminist and pacifist British woman. It's an organization that was founded on the belief that every child has the potential to change the world and that every child deserves protection and care. Within that spirit, in 1920, Save the Children played a critical role in the establishment of the Save the Children International Union, which is now uh, the Save the Children uh, International, which is an organization bringing together child welfare agencies from across Europe and North America. And over the years, Save the Children has been developing remarkable work in the promotion of child welfare, child rights, and child protection worldwide. UNICEF estimates that more than five million children, nearly one in four children in the world, are today living in countries affected by humanitarian crisis, often without access to quality health care, education, nutrition, clean water and sanitation, as well as basic protections. These crises have a significant impact on children's formative years, affecting their survival, growth, and development. During wars, natural disasters, and other emergencies, the systems that are in place to care for and to keep children face, safe in their homes, schools, and communities are often severely undermined or damaged, making children more vulnerable 
and in need for humanitarian assistance and relief. And Save the Children and many other humanitarian agencies have protected and saved millions across the world. Since the mid-19th century, humanitarian assistance has become the dominant framework for the provision of emergency relief and civilian protection. Its objectives have been to save, save lives, alleviate suffering, and maintain human dignity in situations of emergency, being it human-induced crises or natural disasters. Humanitarian action has traditionally been guided by principles of universality, humanity, independence, neutrality, and impartiality. Humanitarian workers are to provide relief and support to vulnerable populations irrespective of race, gender, and cultural, religious, or political affiliations. These guiding principles of humanitarian action were reinforced by the notion of sans frontières, or assistance without borders, which prevents nation states from denying humanitarian workers access to conflict and disaster zones. But as we all know, humanitarian assistance has increasingly been highly politicized. The relationship between politics and humanitarian action has been changing over the years. Various analysts have examined these interconnections and pointed out to the ways in which humanitarian assistance has been influenced by political agendas of donor governments on the one hand, and the way it has been influencing the political economy and the development strategies in recipient countries, on the other. Some have argued that humanitarian assistance became an integral part of donor countries' strategies to decrease violence, transform conflicts, and set up their own development agendas. This changing nature of humanitarian assistance has been labeled the new humanitarianism, understood as being closely associated with hegemonic powers, both in terms of how humanitarian concerns have been used to justify military interventions and regime change agendas, and in terms of how humanitarian assistance became a foreign policy tool for donor governments. Today, humanitarian actions, actors, sorry, are having to contend with the erosion of some key humanitarian principles and with a more challenging political environment and more complex power dynamics. How can humanitarian organizations regain their identity and legitimacy? The insulation of humanitarian assistance, as challenging as it is from politics, will require a return to the traditional principles that have guided humanitarian action. 
But the critical question is how best to do so. And this evening, we are very fortunate to have with us an excellent panel composed by eminent personalities in the fields of children's rights and humanitarian assistance that will guide us in this important conversation. And it is my pleasure to introduce our panel, starting with um, uh, Ms. Robinson, Mary Robinson, who is uh, president of the Mary Robinson Foundation on Climate Justice. Mrs. Robinson served as president of Ireland from 1990 to 1997, and UN High Commission Commissioner for Human Rights from 97 to 2002. She is a member of the Elders and the Club of Madrid, and the recipient of numerous honors and awards, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom from the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Between 2013... I think that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, let me just finish. It's, it's important to have them. No, between 2013 and 16, Mrs. Robinson served as UN Secretary General, Special Envoy, in three important roles. And this is important because it brings in the issues of climate change and uh, El Nino that have very strong connections with humanitarian uh, issues. So she served as... Um, First, the Great Lakes uh, representative for the Great Lakes region of Africa, then on climate change and the special envoy on El Nino and the climate. And um, her well-acclaimed memoir, Everybody Matters, was published in 2012. So please applause and welcome. <laughs> Another panelist we have with us is Mike Harrison. Uh, after graduating, Mike spent two years in Nigeria as a Save the Children relief worker in the Biafran conflict. After 16 years in the UK diplomatic service, he rejoined Save the Children initially as an international director and then from 2095 to 2005 as, as its chief executive. While at Save the Children, he served as governor of the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, as well as a founder and board chair of the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue in Geneva. After the Save the Children, Mike was a civil service commissioner Chair of the Frimley Health NHS Foundation Trust and a non-executive director of Oxford Policy Management. He's also, he has also established the Center for International Intervention at the University of Sussex, where he is now Director Emeritus and an honorary visiting professor. And our third panelist is Ms. Rafia Zakaria. Ms. Zakaria is an author, an editor, and an attorney. She has been a weekly columnist for Dawn, Pakistan's largest and oldest English language daily, since 2009. 
Her column is syndicated in newspapers globally through the Interpress service. She writes the alienated column for the Baffler and has previously been a regular columnist for Al Jazeera America. She also writes regularly for Guardian Books and is a CNN opinion contributor. From 2009 to 15, Ms. Zakaria served on the board of directors of Amnesty International USA and was the first Pakistani-American woman to do so. In autumn 2016, she was part of the How Should Journalism Cover Terrorism project and the Toe Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. In autumn 2017, she co-published Emissaries of Empowerment, a report for Colin Powell Center for Civic and Public Leadership. She has published two books, The Upstairs Wife, An Intimate History of Pakistan in 2015, and The Veil in 2017. Please welcome. Well, having done our, my introductions, <laughs> we, will, we will start our conversation here with the panel, and I will ask a question to each of the panelists. We will start the conversation here, and then I'll open up for uh, the audience. And people who are not in the room but are online, and even those in the room who don't want to ask the question directly on the mic, they can send us a, a, a question. So I will start with Miss um, Robinson. You were the first woman president of the Republic of Ireland, and you are a powerful advocate for women's and children's rights. You have also been a UN envoy on El Nino and climate We've change. Done all that. <laughs> but with world disasters such as the cyclone Haide. Mm which affected Mozambique, my own country, mm. Malawi, mm. and Zimbabwe less than a month ago, mm. with devastating consequences for hundreds and thousands of women and children mm. in these countries. How do you see the connections between climate change and humanitarian action? Well, first of all, I'm really very happy to be back in LSE and here for the centenary of Save the Children, so congratulations on that. And I'm very pleased that we started with Miriam. I'm sorry that she couldn't join us, couldn't get a visa. Uh, did that have something to do with Brexit? No? <laughs> but, no, I want to come to the point you're making, because actually I've just come from Abidjan, where we had the Mo Ibrahim uh, Forum, on migration, youth, and jobs. And there was a lot of discussion of the cyclone, particularly the impact on Mozambique, which is the most affected, but also Zimbabwe yes. and uh, Malawi. And I was actually in a panel uh, ye yesterday with Grasa Michelle, and she was speaking, and she made a point, and I loved the way she made it. She kind of said to me, you know, Mary, I know you've been very involved in climate, and I'm very involved in other things. She said, I never really took climate seriously enough until I went to Berra, and I saw the total devastation, loss of life, decimation of, you know, and, and of course the most affected are the most vulnerable, children, the elderly, women, you know, but, you know, it, it, and 
You know, um, one of the things that I liked most of all when I was serving as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights was the Convention on the Rights of the Child (coughs) and the fact that it was the most ratified convention in the world and that it talked about the role of children having a voice, like Miriam. I mean, she's just a little bit beyond the child now. I think she's about 19, I understand. But, you know, she's been working as a child and and, and using her voice, using her voice on child marriage, which we might come back to because I've been very involved in that as an elder, in fact. But I'm really impressed now, if I may say so, by the fact that school children are mainstreaming climate change in families around the world, and really around the world, hundreds of thousands of school children. They did it on a big day last month, the 15th of March. This year, it's the 12th of March. Let's just watch this space. Hundreds of thousands of school children are going to come out and say, you are not protecting us. We don't have a safe future. And when the Prime Minister of Australia gave out to school children in Australia late last year who came out um, of school and told them to go back to school and not be striking and doing things like that, and they said, why should we go to school when you're not protecting us? We have no future. And, you know, so this is important. It's important that children are actually exercising their voice and helping us to realise the position that we're in. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how strongly I feel I mean, Greta Thunberg is a heroine of mine. You know, she, she has, you know, when she went to Davos and said, our house is burning and all you care about is money. Wow. You know, <laughs> I mean, the yeah. truth to power, the young voice being able to say it directly, as Miriam did to us this evening. Thank you. And also, you know, following up on what you were saying, and particularly in situations like this large um, disasters, what kinds of actions should be undertaken more globally to avoid the, the humanitarian catastrophes that are coming with climate change? Well, the truth is, I mean, you mentioned my special envoy roles. I remember very well being the special envoy on climate change in the months before Paris and listening to presidents of small island states begging that we would have the, we must stay at 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial standards of warming um, in the text. And we did get a new way of framing the goal, which was well below 2 degrees and working for 1.5 degrees. And I thought at the time, and I think most of us thought, that this was kind of an acknowledgement to the small island states, that they would go under with sea level rise if we went above 1.5. But then last October... We had the report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And what those scientists did, because they were asked by the Paris uh, Conference to answer the questions, and the questions basically were, you know, what's the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees of warming, and how do we stay at 1.5 degrees? And they answered both very starkly, to be honest. What they said was, the difference is huge between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. It's in that space that things happen the coral reefs go completely, the Arctic ice melts, and the permafrost begins to really seriously melt. And uh, we then get loopbacks that the scientists are afraid of. But the other side of it was, it is doable to stay at 1.5. It's a matter of political will, and it requires reducing global greenhouse gas emissions from 2010 um, level by 2030. When they said it, it was 12 years, it's now 11 years. And that is extraordinarily challenging, but doable, if we decide. Now, we have so many things we need to do, but first of all, we need to make it personal, every single one of us. And I think 
we need to do something personal in our lives. For example, because I talk a lot about climate change, I've become a pescatarian. I don't eat meat anymore. It's a small thing, but it, I actually, I love lamb from the west of Ireland. I'm not going to have it anymore. <laughs> something. And having done that, I think each of us has to, you know, having made it personal, get angry with those who have the responsibility, governments at all levels, but also fossil fuel industry, business generally, agriculture, <coughs> transport. You know, look at the air quality that you're trying to deal with here in London. You know, all of that. And then we have to imagine that better world where we won't have the air pollution, where we'll have much better health, but also we have the excitement of the fact that a billion people who never switch the switch for electricity can get clean energy, and the 2.3 billion who cook on dirty cook stoves and inhale, and it's women and children who are around their mothers um, who, who inhale and die you know, in significant numbers from indoor uh, pollution. Um, all of this should be moonshot stuff. We should be aiming for that. In, a, in an exciting way and getting excited about it. Yeah. So you want us to get personally involved individually but also have states playing and, and their role yeah, and get angry and, and, and put and pressure on yep. those who can yep. make decisions. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, turning to Mike, Mike, you were with Save the Children as its chief uh, executive for over 10 years or almost 10 years. And you have recently argued, and I read something you wrote, that um, children's rights are not being respected at the, as they should in today's world, and that the Convention for the Rights of the Child doesn't have the normative force that it was intended to have in the beginning. So why do you think the world has failed to make a significant, uh, to make significant progress on this front? I think we actually heard the answer from Mariam. Um, what she said was it's a political choice how a society treats its children. And she was talking about Nigeria, but actually if you just stick with the UK, there are something in the region of 4 million children in the UK living in relative poverty. Um, that's about um, a third of all children and actually, if you compare that with the figure for all people living in poverty, which is about a fifth, it shows you that children are doubly disadvantaged in our society. And what's worse, the age at which children are falling into poverty is getting lower, and also the numbers of children living in absolute poverty is getting greater. So, you know, that is a pretty searing indictment of the policy choices that have been made in this country with regard to children. I got involved in a spat on Twitter the other day by somebody who was, I won't mention which political party he represented, but he was determined to show that things were no worse now than they had been when the coalition government came into power in 2010. And I thought, what a pathetic response. You know, I'm not in a sense, I don't care whether the figures are the same now as they were in 2010. In fact, what an indictment that they haven't got any better than they were in 2010. So, that, you know, there's, there's a set of political choices to be made about our own children in our own society. But if you think of the, of the vision of the founders of Save the Children, as you've, as you've already said, Arcinda, you know, they were also concerned and felt we should all be concerned with, with children in other societies as well. And that's where the sort of internationalist approach to children's rights came from. But, if, and, you know, there has been some progress, and as you say, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child uh, is the most widely ratified human rights instrument. 
But, you know, you just have to look at somewhere like Syria, where there's basically been a civil conflict since 2011 and huge suffering, not just for children, but huge numbers of people displaced from their homes and suffering, in many cases, injury and death. And it took the UN Security Council two and a half years to, to pronounce on the imperative of humanitarian access in Syria. And it wasn't even a Security Council resolution. It was a presidential statement. Why? Because the politics of getting a Security Council resolution arguing for, even arguing for humanitarian access by that stage had become too difficult. So it's the politics. It's a, it's a political choice that societies can make within themselves or that they can choose to make internationally as a society of states. And in terms of what can be done about it, I'm going to say exactly the same as Mary said. The only thing that will shift this is a sense of outrage on behalf of all of us, the same outrage that drove the founders of Save the Children to risk being arrested and sent to jail for criticizing the British government of the day for an economic blockade on Central Europe at the end of the First World War, which meant that children were dying of starvation in places like Vienna. You know, that outrage led to the, the, the formation of Save the Children and, frankly, make it personal. We need that sense of outrage today and political leaders in, in all our countries need to get the message that actually we expect them to do better for children. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. You're right. It's, it, we all need to, to be involved. I have another question for you, if I may. Is that um, over the past few years, um, over the past year, some organizations like Save the Children, Oxfam, and others have been affected by allegations of sexual abuse, sexual exploitation, and <coughs> harassment in the humanitarian and development sector. In view of these challenges, how do you see the role of humanitarian organizations evolving in the next decades? Well, I'm very conscious, first of all, that I'm the only man on this panel. <laughs> um, and it's very entirely appropriate that you ask me that question, because frankly, men have got a lot to answer for. And, you know, the most fundamental point about any form of, of sexual harassment, abuse, or exploitation is that it is an abuse of power. Mm. It's about power relationships and their, their misuse. Uh, and, you know, that's why I think actually all of us should be really grateful to the Me Too movement and the Aid Too movement for having given this issue much greater public prominence over the last couple of years or so. And... And sadly, of course, what, one of the things that has emerged, as you've said, is that the, the aid sector, if you like, is not immune. Mm. Um, and it's a matter of great grief to me that, that at, at a point in, in time that that also affected Save the Children. Um, I'm absolutely convinced that it's not typical of the organization. I'm absolutely convinced that the present leadership of the organization is doing everything it can <laughs> to make sure that it's a place that is the best possible place, not only for children, but also for the people who work there. But the sector as a whole really has to take responsibility. 
you know, you can encounter these issues in situations of chaos and difficulty uh, where you intervene as an outsider. They may be endemic to those situations, but you may also bring them in yourselves as, as an outsider. And, you know, it doesn't really make any difference which it is. Every organization that gives itself the mandate to intervene in these situations really needs to have it needs to be very clear what it stands for. It needs to be very clear what it will tolerate, what it won't tolerate. It needs to have very good policies and processes in place, and then needs to make absolutely sure that it, it sticks to them and it implements them. And that really is a challenge for, this, for the aid sector as a whole, not just NGOs, because this is often laid at the door of NGOs, but actually, over the years, the NGOs have been in the forefront of addressing these issues. It applies equally well to government agencies, uh, to the UN agencies, to peacekeeping forces, uh, as it does to, to humanitarian organizations. So, you know, no excuses. Um, just get on with it and, and you know, do what you, uh, do what you say you, you want to do. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. And on that note, I will move on to Rafia. And connecting with that question that um, I asked uh, Mike, I remember we were talking about some of the challenges that some of these organizations, uh, humanitarian organizations, are also facing in terms of connection of different agendas. And would you like to comment on some of the, of the points that we've been discussing in that regard, Rafia? Yes. <clears throat> and now that I've started talking, finally, I'm not going to stop. So, <laughs> um, so the rest of it is just going to be me. Um, well, I think, you know, it's time really in the discussion to talk politics. And the biggest challenge, or I would even say the biggest sin that the transnational NGO is committing right now is the decontextualization of conflict. And I'll give you an example of that from Save the Children. Some of you may have seen uh, a Save the Children um, short film, it's like an appeal, called Censored. In this film, I'll describe it to you, it opens inside an apartment where a woman who's wearing a headscarf uh, is getting two kids, a boy and a girl, ready for school. Then it cuts to the boy and the girl uh, <clears throat> going downstairs and starting to walk to school when suddenly there's a bombing. And they show the little girl and the boy being afraid. Uh, the little girl gets injured. There's a cut to her in the hospital. And eventually, you know, there's the Save the Children appeal. Now the problem with an appeal like this is that it doesn't say who's doing the bombing. And the consequence of that is, is that if you're a white Westerner who's watching this appeal, you can safely assume that it's not your government that's doing the bombing. <laughs> and the consequence of that is, that a donation to save the children then functions as a means of self-absolution. I've done my bit. I've saved those children. Okay? So don't hold me responsible for the 150,000 people, for instance, that the United States